You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> Uh, hello and welcome to tonight's program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Jim Colgan. I'm a 2020 John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University. And I'm here with Artie Shahani, who's NPR's Silicon Valley correspondent and also author of the new memoir, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares. Artie, thanks very much for being here. Uh, thank you for being here. Yeah. <laughs> of course. And I thought we'd start by really getting a sense of your story and how you tell your story, which I think is very important. So I was wondering if you could read from oh, some of the book. Oh, go right there. Okay. Yeah. From where you've marked it. Yes. Okay. So actually, I'll just do a little bit of setup about it. You know, um, here we are is, as you mentioned, it's a piece of my family's immigrant story um, in broad brushstrokes. We came to this country, uh, we overstayed tourist visas, and we were undocumented. Uh, we eventually got our papers, and we thought we were on the straight shot to the American dream. Um, turns out that's not what happened. Um, while I was pursuing my precocious early career as a scholarship kid at a very fancy private school in Manhattan, uh, that in today's terms, by the way, cost a Tesla a year to attend, uh, for real. Um, my father started his own business, a small wholesale electronics store on 28th street and Broadway in Manhattan. Um, that was his dream. Uh, he was a really intelligent man. He spoke six languages. He could multiply very large numbers in his head. He had a photographic memory. But as a lifelong migrant who was part of low-end globalization, uprooted from his childhood home when he was young and continuously having to move around the world, as a lifelong migrant, he was essentially irrelevant. Wherever he had to move, he had to start over. And who he was before he came here didn't seem to matter. So starting that store was a huge accomplishment for him. And then one day we get a call that my father has been arrested and taken to Rikers Island because apparently my family business has sold watches and calculators to the Kali drug cartel. And so we go from there to explore this legal case that in theory was supposed to be settled quickly through some maneuvers in a courtroom and in reality spiraled to take on multiple lives of its own and how I grew up in the shadow of that legal case. And so I just want people to know in broad brushstrokes that that's basically what the story is about because if you've heard me before, I mean, many of you know me, so you've heard me in multiple contexts, but if you don't know me, then basically I like to call myself the Indian IT lady on NPR. <laughs> That's who I am, dutifully delivering the news on Facebook and Google. Uh, and it's important news. It's about disinformation campaigns disrupting democracy. It's about artificial intelligence re-envisioning how the world works and making our lives better, but also taking away jobs. I mean, it's complicated and important and hefty and powerful. Um, but what you don't know was, oh, she was from Queens. She didn't have papers for a long time. Her dad was in jail. And that arc of experience fundamentally defined her entire life. And I needed you to know. Hence the book. So uh, this specific passage that, that Jim, you've asked me to read is, um, I mentioned we overstayed tourist visas and we were living in Queens. There's something to me really funny about what immigrants do, not just my family, is you garner the confidence and the wherewithal and the personal resources and whatever financial resources you have to cross an ocean or to cross a desert. And then you just get tired and settle as quickly as you can close to the airport. <laughs> that's, that's what my family did. It's, it's like, it's, it's actually demographic. It's like, it's a statistical fact. That's just what we do. We, we get tired. We lose steam. We don't finish the marathon. Um, so my family did exactly that. We got our papers through a process that is now derided as chain migration. Chain migration is to me a beautiful term. 
Every family member is a link on the chain. And the more links you add, the longer and the stronger the chain is. We are unfortunately at a moment in this country where the things that we should see as positive, we are unfortunately, because we are misguided by certain leaders, seeing as negative. But it is actually a positive thing. It's what's built the backbone of this country. So my family benefited from chain migration. My auntie sponsored us. We got our green cards. And once we got our green cards, dad wanted to leave. (laughs) True story. Dad was ready to do what millions of immigrants before him had done, pack up and go. We don't tend to hear this part of the American story. We know about the Ellis Island immigrants who poured in, not about those who then decided the winter was too cold, the city was too mean, and it was time to go back. That was dad's thinking. After his first business venture fell apart, he tried to pick himself back up. He went knocking on Broadway doors, asking for any work he could get. He got the most menial jobs, sweeping streets and shoveling snow. He would work a whole day and still couldn't put more than $40 in mom's hand. And he longed for a country without snow, of which there are many. (laughs) Paralyzing isolation and extreme weather gross malfunctions of nature are for many immigrants, two of the most devastating features of America. And while women are raised to know they will leave their own families to join that of their husbands, men are supposed to stay close to their parents and brothers until the end. That's what dad grew up learning. Wasn't that, wasn't that another law of nature? Please. Mom tried to reason with him. If you get a good job, we can move to a better place. By getting a green card, they'd just broken through a major barrier. Now was not the time to give up. Thank you. So your father was from Karachi, Pakistan, before it was Pakistan, right? That's right. And then he lived in the Middle East and North Africa um, before arriving to the U.S. So could you tell us a little bit about how he and your family ended up in Queens. I think it's what you described as the the most uh, diverse zip code in the country, right? Yeah. Well, I believe it was when I was growing up, um, certainly among the most diverse even through today. So my parents were both born on the Indian subcontinent when it was just one landmass under British colonial rule. The Brits occupied the subcontinent for more than three centuries and then were in a mad rush to leave. Um, People in this room will be more familiar with the legacy of Mahatma Gandhi and the nonviolent peace movement, maybe less familiar with the fact of partition. There was a horrific civil war upon the end of colonialism. Um, The British had a man who'd never set foot on Indian soil divide up India and Pakistan. Um, They thought that he was objective. It's a word that I've heard before in different contexts. Um, And what ended up happening was that Uh, millions of people were uprooted and or killed. My parents were among those uprooted. Um, And it was this horrific bloodshed. I mean, Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs were butchering each other. Train cars would pull into stations with bodies that were completely dead. Babies were roasted on skewers. I mean, there is horrific violence. My parents each, my dad being six years old, my mother being an infant, each left at that time. Interestingly, no one knows my mom's exact birthday because she was born during civil war and they just, they couldn't keep track of time. So her birthday is a mystery to us. I have guesses based on what I believe to be her horoscope, but based on what I believe to be her personality. I'm like, mom, you're totally a Leo. Everything about you is a Leo. (laughs) Um, but basically you'd ask about dad's, well, I've you to Queens, my father and his family left to go live in India in a city close to Bombay, but it wasn't their home. It's just where they landed. And then by the time he was a teenager, he left the subcontinent altogether to go and become a migrant worker in Beirut, Lebanon, and to support his family of 13. So, you know, by the, by the time, before my father was 20, he was, you know, 19 years old, he'd already left home. I mean, very, very far away. And from Beirut, he ended up traveling through Northern Africa, um, and the Middle East and eventually 
meeting my mother in Morocco. My mom's family went from India to Spain to Morocco. My parents met at a poker game. Um, I was an accident, but their third child came much later. Um, but, but they definitely had an appetite for risk. That's for sure. Um, so as do, I mean, anyone who's going to cross an ocean has that appetite. Um, they ended up in Queens. I actually didn't know the answer until I wrote the book. Hmm. I had no idea why my family decided to go from a relatively stable life in Casablanca, Morocco, where me and my two elder siblings were born all the way across the ocean to live a precarious life in a one bedroom apartment where like, literally I can recall more than once a roach crawling up my bare skin when I was little, like we lived in a roach then the reason they did it. And I did not know this until I began talking to people about my book, including my mother. I asked her a question that many of you might want to ask your parents or your grandparents like, all right, mom, why specifically did you decide to grab the kids and you and dad come here? My father has since passed. He passed in 2015. That's why I asked my mother. I'm like, specifically why? Because you always say, oh, it was to give a better life to you kids. We wanted a better life for you kids. And I was like, but we had a really crappy life in some ways. <laughs> like, what's the better life you're talking about? And that's when my mother told me these specific details that I've, I, you know, I've now been, uh, I've done a, a couple dozen talks so far on, on this book tour. And I realize these details will be familiar to, to many other people who know the history of the women of their family. My mother explained to me that back home in Casablanca home, we were living in a joint family. A joint family, meaning mom and dad living with dad's mom and brothers, all of us together under one roof. And it was a really tough situation. Um, my grandmother, uh, my father's mother was, was mom didn't use the word abuse. And back then she didn't know the word abuse, but like if mom made something that my daddy, my paternal grandmother didn't like daddy would throw it at the wall and you know, if it hit mom or not, it didn't matter, but she wasn't going to eat it. Mom had to get permission to open the refrigerator or to go out. Um, my parents were not allowed to sleep in the same place. My grandmother ordered my dad to stay in her room and mom had to sleep in the living room. Um, and things got so bad that at some point, and my mom is the most resilient human being I know. I don't know anybody on earth more resilient than my mother. She tried to take her own life. I didn't know that. I'm very close to her. We talk a lot. I had no idea that my mom actually attempted suicide. Until you started writing the book. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. So there was, you know, in the process of writing, there are these sort of facts that come out that you're like, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know. Even when you're close, like you can be so close to someone, but there's that element of being forever strangers. Yeah. That's always that distance between you somewhere. Often that distance is in trauma because the nature of trauma is that people don't want to share their deepest pain. Cause if you talk about it, you may feel stuck in it. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, so talking about it is, something that struck me about how you approached this book and the stories that you tell in it, because you say that, you know, it wasn't like you said, coming here for new opportunities, even though that was sort of the common line that you would say, Oh, we're coming to the U S because yeah. the opportunities are better. Um, that it's easier to say we're having a better life for our kids. than I despise you That's old right. family. Yes. <laughs> how did it feel to actually articulate that though? Did you have any shame about that? Like, did you have feelings saying that to the world? I mean, that's definitely, listen, I get raw. Okay. Like I'm, I'm pretty, uh, it was important for me to give the most honest version of the truth that I possibly could. And it was important to me specifically because I think that there's something very dangerous that happens in this country around immigrant narratives. You're either pro-immigrant or you're anti-immigrant. And whichever camp you're in, you have to flatten the immigrant identity into some two-dimensional, like nonsensical figure that just doesn't ring true to reality. Well, you know what? I get to be a writer. I'm not currently fighting to keep my family together. I was in that position for more than a decade. We'll talk about that. When I was in the position of fighting to keep us together, I gave the two-dimensional version of us all the time. But I feel that this country needs 
and I need stories that are honest about the people who are the backbone of America. And it's somehow over the last handful of decades become not okay to share who we actually are because we either have to be perfect or we're villains. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting because it's not that I had to be like, Hey, we had some family drama back home, but you know what? Here's my guess. If we had it, a bunch of people did. And when I learned the story from my mom of why specifically we came here, it fundamentally changed how I see the women at the border, for example. Because now you see in your newsfeed, you see images of all of these people coming in. How do you understand who they are? Well, I understand them in two ways now, in part through the news of the drug wars and the horrific violence happening throughout Central America. But I also understand it as America has long been a place for women seeking freedom, not from communism per se, but from like their extended family and patriarchal structures. Mm -hmm. That's a huge part. Actually, you know, go to Ellis Island. If you're ever back in my hometown, New York City, take the ferry to Ellis Island. They restored it. It's a gorgeous museum now. Awesome audio tour. You'll hear these stories. There's so many women like that. I actually went with my mom over the summer and she was fascinated hearing like, you know, women who are now, you know, or who were at the time of recording these audio archives, recounting themselves being teenagers wanting to get away. Yeah. You know? So. And by the way, if you have questions for Artie, I believe everybody has a piece of paper. You can write them and pass them on to the staff and then we'll read them out on, uh, on the stage. So you also wrote about how it wasn't really until your dad was actually in Rikers where you actually set out to try and get to know him. Yeah. So you didn't actually feel like you knew him until then. Uh, so it was essentially across the visitor table at Rikers Island. What what was that like? Yeah, and that you know, I I kind of glossed over in high in, in brush strokes what happened with my with my family in terms of an arrest. Just give a little bit of context sure, yeah, for yeah. that, and, and tell you about the way that Dad and I bonded. Um, so I was a scholarship kid at the Brearley School, mm-hmm. learning fascinating vocabulary. I've always loved words, and I learned words like or terms like country house. If you've never heard this term before, which I hadn't when I started being a scholarship kid at the private school, a country house is a home that is your second home. You have to understand that for somebody who grew up in a one-bedroom doge, uh, a one-bedroom roach uh, den with their siblings and parents, like that that is like earth-shattering news that that there are people rich enough on this earth to afford that. So I was like in the creme de la creme. I had never seen so many white people before in my life. Like, no, literally, I, like on TV I had, but not in person. Mm-hmm. My, my upbringing was working class United Nations. That was where I grew up. And so I just wasn't like, I didn't think that, so, like I wanted to pull blonde hair. I was like, that nah, is it really? Like it was that kind of thing. It was just a whole new world. And it was an exciting world and it felt like such a big world. And I have to admit, as I was going through that sort of experience, even before my father was arrested, I felt ashamed of my parents. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not supposed to say that about your parents. Like, that's, that's a very rude thing to say. But I kind of felt like, oh, well, they're, they're not CEOs of these things called Fortune 500 companies. Um, they're not... Uh, professors at Columbia, I learned what the word tenured meant, you know, like I just, they weren't those things. And so I was kind of like already in that kind of that developmental mind state of, oh my God, I don't want my classmates to see where I come from. I already had that feeling. Um, and then I get a call that my father's at Rikers Island. Okay. And I remember the first time I visited that. My, my reflex when I was young, and you know this because we're buddies now, um, I wanted to be a prosecutor. That was my goal. I'm going to grow, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to put away the bad guys. That's where I came from. And I have very good prosecutorial instincts. Um, and when dad was arrested, my first thought is, what did you do? What did you do, dad? to get yourself into this mess. I was so angry at him. And that anger lasted for a while. I mean, it took me a while before I started to pay attention to his case and see it in a different way. But 
I went to go visit him at Rikers Island with my mom and my brother. And my thoughts are like, what are we doing here? We don't belong here. This is all some big mistake. And the one little thought though, that popped up in my head that I ended up spending a decade of my life unpacking in an unexpected way. The one little thought was looking around in that room, huge visitor center, hundreds of people visiting their incarcerated loved ones, looking around. And I was like, where are all of the white criminals? Does New York City not have any white criminals? I didn't know what to do with that thought then, but it was there. Now, what happened in my father's case, I remember the first day we went to court for his hearing. Um, I didn't tell people at school why I was missing school. Um, we go to court and it's the people versus the Shahanis. And, you know, it's a sort of a stunning thing to hear, the people versus mm -hmm. the Shahanis. It's like, oh my God, I thought we were the people. My, 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 I mean, you know, like my, my mother, you know, who I, I keep smiling whenever I refer to her, like she started the tenants association in our building because the slumlord was so bad and she like organized tenants to like petition for cleanup to like get rid of the drug dealers who were selling the kids in the front of our building you know like we were the people like i learned nonviolent conflict resolution from a quaker center from one of the oldest buildings in all of the americas when i was a teenager it was just it was so weird to no longer be the people but them against us and the prosecutor basically made it sound like my family's business was a full-on front for a drug cartel. We're just laundering money for these people who sell to kids and shoot journalists dead in restaurants in Jackson Heights. That's what we're doing. That's how it sounded. The official charge was money laundering. And then an interesting thing happened. Fast forward a few months of hearings, delays, like just scheduling, whatever, whatever. The prosecutors are offering a deal. Mr. Shahani and his little brother, my uncle, who was also running the store, Mr. Shahani and Mr. Shahani, just take an eight-month sentence and call it quits. We can just put the whole matter behind us. Well, if we're just a front for a cartel, why are you offering an eight-month sentence? And here's the thing. If they wanted to go to trial, this is a very poorly understood part of the criminal justice system for anyone who's not been in it. There's something called a trial penalty, meaning... If you exercise your right to trial because you want to beat all the charges, you will get penalized if convicted. So instead of taking the eight months that they're offering you, if convicted, you'll get a decade, maybe 15 years. It's a penalty. It's a very strong penalty, which is why in most regions, it's like 99% of people plead. Okay. That's just what people do statistically speaking, because you know what? Most, pe most people don't have the appetite or the resources for that kind of risk in their life. You know, and that's a point that I think is really important. The justice system, it is not about innocence and guilt. It is about risk and reward. Just that is fundamentally what it is about. So my father and my uncle did what everybody, pretty much everybody in this room would do. They took a plea. They were supposed to each serve eight months. And then this is another interesting detail. Even though we were a front for the cartel, the prosecutor agreed to let one man go in first do his eight months and come out and then let the other guy go in so that someone could always run our family business and it wouldn't fold. Crazy. So day one, you're front for the cartel. Pleading date, we understand these are family men and it's a family business and whatever. So my uncle went in first. He was supposed to do eight and a half months, or sorry, excuse me, eight months. He was supposed to do eight months. He ended up serving two and a half years because of a New York state administrative error. They just made a mistake. Whoops. That's how the system works. So I got involved then. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. How old were you at that time when you were? Yeah. So, I mean, his prolonged, uh, I ended up getting involved when I was 19. Wow. So basically we thought this was a short thing. It'd be over but it became a long thing. So I ended up actually writing to the judge in the case. And I wrote directly to the judge. I was by then a college student at the university of Chicago. And I wrote directly to the judge because I was like, the lawyers aren't fixing the problem. The lawyers just keep showing up to court and not doing anything. And no one files any paperwork. 
and there is a man I'm related to who's in prison who needs to get out. So I write this to the judge. I explain the sort of, probably in these terms, like the idiocy of the legal help and <laughs> whatever. And the judge responds. He actually responds. It was amazing. He ordered all of the lawyers to come into court. He ordered all of them to clean up their mess. And Mr. Shahani, my uncle, Mr. Shahani, was supposed to be returned home. And then dad would do his time to be over. Well, here's what happened. Everything solved. Problem solved. We're planning my uncle's homecoming party celebration. Thank God. One chapter almost done. And then he goes missing. For one, two, three, then four days. No idea where he is. He is missing. Homecoming party is now a search party. Where is Uncle Ruffin? My father gives me a call. And this to me is like the, <laughs> this moment encapsulates for me the turning point in my relationship with my father. Like, um, he gives me a call. And I'm, by the way, like I'm his baby girl with the really big mouth who he's like really worried. Oh my God, how is she going to fare in this world? Like, she's just like, no one will accept her. She's not marriageable. Like everything about her is off. Like my father would never have imagined that in America, a woman could be paid for a mouth like this. That was not, that he just, that's not the world he came from. But this is America. Anyway, you know, my father who always saw sort of my, my kind of fiery spirit as, as a liability. And I didn't much care for him. I mean, he was the guy who just told me my skirt's too short or my shirt's too tight or, you know, whatever. Like I didn't, I didn't bond with him exactly. He, I was the first person he called to tell me, and he was weeping. I had never heard my father cry before. Never before had he cried that, that I'd heard. And he's like, they took him, they took him. Who took whom? Immigration took Rathan. Immigration took Rathan. Look, what are you talking about, Dad? He's like, for deportation. They're taking him for deportation. Now, to me, this was really baffling because both my father and uncle had green cards. They were lawful permanent, re like the card says lawful permanent resident. And most of us were naturalized U.S. citizens. And I, by the way, my name, I, I now say it Artfi, Artfi Shahani. Up until I was 20, I was Artie. Like, I had, that was my American, you know, we have Starbucks names. That was my American name. I'm just Artie. But dad tells me for deportation and I'm like, like electric current through my entire being. If you've ever had a moment where you felt your existence existentially threatened, and it can come in many ways. It could be in a sporting event. It could be that you have a child and you see something happening to the child and you feel it. There are any number of ways where you literally just feel that bolt go through your body and you're not sure what's going on, but you feel your entire being needs to rally. That's what happened in that moment. And I told my father, dad, you were wrong. This is a mistake. Uncle Ruthven already did his time. He did more than his time. The judge said they shouldn't even go to jail. You shouldn't even go to jail. I mean, like we had, like, we're good people. I was done judging him. I was like, whatever, we're good people. <laughs> this is a mistake. And there's no double jeopardy in this country. It's in the constitution. There's no double jeopardy. And I was wrong. So my uncle was summarily deported to India where he had not lived since the fifties. And then my father was, you know, going to be next. That's, that's what was, that was, what was, uh, that's what the law said. So it was almost so. like a, a second sentence after they've served their time. It's, and it's not, not even until, almost. It's not, yeah. it is a second sentence. It is. And yeah. it's not until it after they've served the time that they actually find that out. Yeah, it's exactly a sort of second surprise punishment. And then the thing about it is that, uh, legally deportation, even though the process involves exile and prisons, like you get put into prisons while they're holding you to decide what to do with you. On paper, it's a civil proceeding. It's, it's more close to like a parking ticket. Um, and that's why it's not considered punishment mm -hmm. because it's civil, not criminal. So it's just, the, I, I basically started learning these things. I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. My first foray into law was my mm -hmm. family's faux defender. 
And um, I started learning about the system from age 19 um, and then fighting to keep my father here with all sorts of things that had nothing to do with that courtroom uh, until about age 30. So, yeah. So but I trace it to that phone call. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how did your views, I imagine your views changed all this time about the criminal justice system, the immigration system all around this time. It all changed. Yeah. I mean, I would say in part, I mean, it changed for the exposure my family had. It also changed because of 9-11. Mm-hmm. So when I first learned what was happening to my family, I was looking for help. I was like, I need to find us a really good lawyer. <laughs> like not one of these ambulance chasers who we keep landing, but someone who actually knows what they're doing. And I started like writing around and I kind of, I just accidentally got invited to speak at the New York City Bar Association. It was like an event at the Bar Association. This is the first time publicly speaking in search of, I was really, I was looking for a lawyer, but I'm like, I'll go anywhere. Just throw me some lawyers. And I got to the Bar Association and I did not realize that um, what the event was, was actually uh, this massive like panel to discuss a bipartisan campaign. Republicans and Democrats both agreed, if you can imagine that time in American contemporary history. Republicans and Democrats both agreed that the immigration deportation laws had gone too far. There was bipartisan agreement that America created a system that was too punitive and that families were being hurt wrongfully and this needed to change. So I actually stumbled into this panel. <laughs> One of the other people on the panel was the top prosecutor for the immigration authority. And I was like, wow, I just, I'm really in it right now. And I, you know, I was like, maybe I was 20 by then. I, I lectured them about the constitution, <laughs> like, like this weeping mess. And like, it just, I had, I, I had to let the adults know because the adults seemed so clueless to me, you know, anyway, I ended up finding not just a lawyer, but a, an entire political campaign that was dedicated to trying to help families like mine. And I joined that campaign and it was exhilarating. It was, you know, this is like, I, I see a few younger people here who I'm very happy to see. And like, you know, I remember that time as being, I was 20 years old fighting, not just for my father, but to change the laws that were affecting thousands of other families, just like my family. And we were meeting with Republicans and Democrats and they were taking our meetings and we were going to Congress and we we're going to fix it all. And on September 11th, 2001, I was on a train from New York city to Washington, DC to continue pushing the bipartisan campaign for immigrant rights. And then the towers collapsed. My first reflex is, where is my brother? My brother worked in one of them. And then, you know, it's interesting. When a, when a disruptive moment happens, you don't always know in that moment how things are going to pan out, how the disruption unfolds. It's hard to know. So listen, in retrospect, I'm just going to sound woefully naive and optimistic to you. But I really imagined in that moment and for two more years after that moment, no, 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 it's okay. My family and my loved ones and the people I'm fighting for and with had nothing to do with the attacks. It's not about us. We're grieving too. America's going to come together and we're going to like improve national security and we're going to restore immigrant rights. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Uh, <laughs> you would have made the same mistake. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> and you're going through all this. You're still 19, 20, 21. Mm -hmm. You're the family attorney. Mm -hmm. You're bringing about all these changes, writing to the judge, getting a response from the judge. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like you probably had to grow up very fast mm -hmm. during that time. D do you ever resent that? Oh, so much. 
I mean, here's the thing. And I really appreciate that question because I feel like, listen, ultimately I really love my family. And I think that part of what gave me permission, uh, to write so honestly in this book is we've been through so much together. We really trust each other. And so they kind of trusted me like, Arthi, you got this. It's fine. But that said, I definitely felt like, you know, how I stumbled into journalism, it's, it's quite unconventional. The backstory to your Indian IT lady. Like I basically fought through all sorts of political channels and very bizarre legal maneuvers to keep my dad in this country. And when I was done, I was 30 my credit score was horrific. I mean, like I looked at that FICO thing. I was like, I mean, it doesn't go low enough for me. You know, like it was so bad. Even though I had really nice education, I felt like there was nothing kind of discernible I could do with my life. Um, I no longer think of 30 as young, but when you are 30, or I no longer think of 30 as old rather, but when you are 30, you somehow think it is. Like you don't realize that you're still a baby and you have plenty of time. Um, but I had that kind of like angst of, oh my God, I come from nothing. I have nothing. And what the heck is my life when I'm not being an immigrant daughter? I was angry. And even when I was writing this book, like, you know, when I told you, I, I talked to my mom about like, okay, mom, why exactly did we move here? Like, what was that about? It wasn't a neutral question. I mean, it was straight up resentment. It was like, you put us through so much, like justify yourself, you know? And that's when she told me about the family situation and the attempted suicide. Yeah. And, and was she... Did she find it hard to talk about? Like, oh that yeah, 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 definitely. It's funny. I think I think that um, you know, different people react differently to painful memories. Um, my sister, um, who I'm very close to, made this point. She's like, Arthi, it seems like you deal w with pain by wanting to like stare it straight in the face and dissect the hell out of it. Like you just, you don't want to stop going at it with your scalpel. And my sister wants to deal with it by like, forget it. And let's move on to happier times. You know, like, let's just not look at the past. My mother is interesting because I believe she has the capacity for either, but she was willing to go there with me. She basically like, it's not that she needed to talk about it, but she knew that I needed to. And she, you know, she made a lot of time. And even like, like I was, listen, I wrote this book from the heart. This book is my heart on a page. Okay. Um, but I'm also like, I am a journalist and I, you know, I have like a, some very strong investigative reflexes. So when mom tells me this story about my mother and uh, my, my grandmother, her mother-in-law, I'm like, you know, when the tears are dry, when there's been sufficient moments for empathy and also for me internalizing, cause you know, a difference between, writing memoir versus reporting somebody else's story is when you're reporting somebody else's story, this is a fact for us journalists. There's a slight kind of delight in the pain that is suffered by others. <laughs> and it's unfortunately the incentives of the business. It's like, if it bleeds, it leads. And, you know, I think a lot about this as a human, when you're writing memoir, the pain that people recount for you and your loved ones, it's your pain. So you actually don't want it to be that bad. You don't want to hear it. I would have preferred a much less interesting coming to America story. I didn't want that one, but that was the truth. But even after she told me that, and I think I probably spent like that evening literally like laid out on a bed because she's my mother. She's somebody I love. So to find out that she went through certain things was very painful, including things I did not put in the book that I chose not to put in the book. Um, it was painful. But then the next day, my question to her is, who can corroborate this? Your second source. Yeah. Or third. Or, exactly. Exactly. And then she points to, you know, I didn't realize this, but my, my grandma's daughters who are still alive, 
did not care for their mother and would not visit her after they were married. And so they had their own stories about growing up, you know, so. So you could. Yeah. yeah. I mean, very easily. Yeah. yeah. So a few people in the audience have asked a question about how you've managed to stay positive. Have you always stayed positive going through all this and not become bitter about the justice system, about immigration? Hmm. Thank you for saying that I seem positive. <laughs> um, it's important for us to not like positive, like, you know, like, like marketers positive, like, yeah, let's all be happy or whatever. Like, it's not like that. It's, it's that, you know, again, it's, it's seeing fully. It's the acceptance of duality. My book, it's called Here We Are, subheading American Dreams, American Nightmares. The here we are is a pure statement of fact. Like it or not, here we are. The American Dreams, American Nightmares is my thesis about this country. Um, my father lived the full-on nightmare. What does that nightmare look like and mean? The nightmare is basically <laughs> being the constant target of institutionalized racism, of the long arm of the law that refuses to look at who you are. Like literally my father's, my father's crisis in the justice system is that who he was literally did not matter. Like that was his issue in the justice system. Um, he lived that nightmare thoroughly and we lived at the margins of it. But here's the flip, the American dreams. I have a good life. Let's be real. I have a very good life. I mean, in this country, my big mouth was not a liability. It opened doors that would never have opened back home. I was allowed to go to school. Not sure that would have happened back home. Um, I got scholarships to amazing places. I mean, I did not incur, you know, and this is not every American student's experience. I did not incur debt going to school for whatever school I went to. I mean, it's a very different experience from it. And, you know, I think that part of what we're questioning right now in this country is, is the dream alive? Um, they're, you know, they're excellent now burgeoning economists and social scientists sort of looking at how the dream is dying because the nature of the dream of the American dream is the ability to cross into worlds you did not know existed and your parents could not access. That's the nature of the dream. I've absolutely lived that. We are in a moment in this country where more and more Americans are not living that. And so I think that in part, what we're seeing in terms of the immigration crisis in this country, which I think is a crisis of consciousness more than anything, what we're seeing is playing out across issues and fields and constituencies, you know, but my, you know, I feel positive in the sense of, you know, to some extent, America is a bit of like a broken relationship right now. And in a broken relationship, how do you solve it? Do you solve it by just looking at what's broken and saying that, 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 and indicting it? Or do you also kind of adjust your lens to see where the hope is and see what works and emphasize, oh, this is possible. Oh, this is possible. Let's remember our better selves, mm -hmm. you know? So for a time you were an activist as well. You started a nonprofit to help yeah, right. immigrants facing deportation. And now you're a journalist. Mm hmm how would you compare the impact you had as an activist um, compared to being a journalist? Impact. Such a tricky word. Um, I think I'm one of those people who, I, I don't feel that I've had an impact on anything. Like, or let me put it this way rather. I certainly had an impact on my family's life. I know I did. Um, part of why I wrote the book was actually to grapple with a question that many immigrants ask, but we're not supposed to ask out loud. And the question was simply, was it worth it? Was coming to America worth it? Was coming to America a mistake? A lot of us ask that question. I've now been on book tour for, you know, for many cities in many states that question comes up for people so much. And it's difficult to ask it because when you're fighting to stay somewhere, you have to lead with your gratitude, not with your doubt, right? Um, and so part of what I'm working through in my book is 
Was it a mistake to fight for my father the way that I did? Did he actually want it? Mm -hmm. Um, Was I just pushing my way because I couldn't imagine us existing except for in this place? That was to me home. That is to me home. So there's impact there. I think what community organizers and journalists both do, even though there's an industry divide, what they have in common is that um, they're storytellers. We're storytellers. You're seeing something that you believe needs to have a light shown on it. You're engaged with the relevant actors. I mean, something I love about community organizing as opposed to just sort of like a petition kind of activism is that in organizing, you're actually meeting the people who are affected by things. You're building what's called a base of people, of constituents. You're bringing them together. You're talking to each other. You're getting a sense of other people's lived experience. It's incredibly grounded work. And journalism can be incredibly grounded work where you go and you scavenge for who is relevant for something that is happening in this world, not just any armchair blowhard, but someone who's actually relevant and understanding what they, what they understand, what they know about it, whatever, whatever. So I actually see a great deal of continuity between the two. What I'm not sure about is which one has more impact. Cause you know what I see ultimately it's like in Silicon Valley, you get to see real power. I mean, real power. And I give this example like um, Travis Kalanick of Uber. I remember covering Uber, reporting uh, before and after its IPO, particularly before the IPO, about that company. And I was actually focused on the worker issues, not the, not the worker issues that Susan Fowler that were uncovered in terms of the, the women's issues at the company. I was focused on like the driver issues, like the working class driver issues, the sort of crap gig economy jobs that people are doing and how the app doesn't even let you know what you're exactly, what your expenses are when you're doing it because, you know, the app makers could help you track your, your costs, but they don't. And just, you know, this kind of like working class stuff. And I remember while reporting on Uber and learning more about the company and how it's, its model is, it is better to ask forgiveness than permission. That is literally the model of Uber. Go into a market, whether they want you or not, whether you're allowed or not, and then say sorry, and then have your political operatives and your lawyers just handle it. Like, you know, it's to me, the legal engineering is much more impressive than the technical engineering. And... Good way to put it. I mean, that's, that, you know, but that's how, that's how capital is amassed, you know? And when I look at the fact that my father, who was a workaholic, whose basic goal was just to provide for his family, and he was great at math and languages and wanted to work seven days a week, and he was at the margins of the tech economy. He was at sort of the low end. It's our small business It's selling things, selling watches and calculators before Amazon existed. That he paid such a heavy cost and was never able to return to the workforce for what was supposed to be an eight-month sentence. And that Travis Kalanick is not in criminal proceedings for this. For, I, like, to me, it's like, here's how justice works. If you're rich, you have a civil warning and possibly case. And if you're working class, you get the criminal route. Um, so, you know, I think that um, Silicon Valley, as a student of power, I think I've always, I've long been a student of power. Silicon Valley has been a very eye-opening place to me about how power works. So there's a question here from the audience. After all you've seen and experienced about your parents, would you feel it's easier for you to migrate yourself? Have you ever decided um, that a better life lay elsewhere? Oh. Wow, audience. <laughs> <laughs> like, shout out some destinations. <laughs> um, part of what I decided when I was writing this book, like I needed to write the book for me. Ultimately, you know, the deepest meditation happening in this book is not about politics and policy. It's about me and my dad. It literally is just that journey of like, in what crazy circumstances did this guy I didn't like become my best friend? Like to me, that is the greatest puzzle of all and nothing is worth deeper contemplation than love. And that's what happens here. 
I do love America. I do. Um, and I feel like the right thing to do is to try to make her better. So listen, we're living increasingly in a world. And I think what's interesting about this group in Silicon Valley, it's like people here more so than other parts of the country are accustomed to this idea of binational or multinational living and having really strong ties to other parts of the world. Something I love about here is that people understand that actually the direction of the world is just to be more integrated. That's actually just, that's the march of capitalism. It's the march of technology. It's the direction of human relationships. I mean, the U.S. is, uh, you know, there's so much interracial marrying in this country. You know, like my mom points this out to me. You know, I told you about the Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs who were killing each other during partition. You get to Queens, they're babysitting for each other. They're sharing milk and sugar and, and, you know, killing roaches together. Like, <laughs> like America has such a capacity to absorb difference. And it is really easy to forget that right now because that's not, that's actually not our national narrative right now. Our national narrative right now is very, very polarizing and it's making us feel that the divisions between us are greater than they actually are in our lived experience. And so I feel like, uh, I mean, listen, I'm game to like, you know, try my hand in another country maybe at some point, but this will always be uh, a home or the home, or at least a home for me and an important place to speak up right now because I have insight from growing up in Flushing, Queens, you should all visit. Great food. Make sure you have cash because plenty of places still don't take square or any of that, you know, um, the best, highest value meal. Um, you know, from growing up in Queens and then even from moving to Silicon Valley and in that whole journey, seeing, for example, when my father was being threatened with exile from this country, who rallied for us? I'm going to be very honest. And some of the, my fellow Desis Indians in the crowd will understand this. It wasn't our people who rallied for my father. Our people, frankly, they were the first to cut us off. Some of them were doing exactly what dad was doing, cash business, selling watches and calculators, didn't want to be in, you know, implicated in anything. Some people have judgment, you know, but Americans and other immigrants, black Americans, white Americans, Latinx, people from all sorts of places, they were like, we're going to help the Shahani family stay. They were writing our petitions. They were giving us hundreds of letters of support. It was Americans or people who decided this is their home. And so I feel that's very instructive about the, the true culture of America because the issue is that there's a difference between law and culture. Okay, this is very simple. Our culture is open and expansive and absorbent. Our laws are not. And our laws are not because our political leaders are misguided. Shocker. <laughs> We're dealing with that in a lot of contexts right now, not just this issue. And so the challenge is for us to make leadership have laws that are reflective of our open and absorbent culture. Another question from the audience. Um, how did your parents talk to you about their document, uh, their documentation status? And do you remember that? Oh, when I was little. Yeah. I mean, my brother remembers it more because my brother is a decade older than me. And my brother was basically my surrogate father starting at age 12 for him. Um, he had a lot of, he had a lot of pressure put on him to, to be a support. I would hear my parents use words like, um, like I remember hearing the word green card. I remember, um, my father, you know, sort of once, you know, like, um, telling my mother not to sign something. It was basically, I went back and asked about it. It was like a petition. It was like a, basically a complaint to the super. Like when you're undocumented, you don't want to leave a paper trail. That's sort of the nature of being undocumented. Um, so I remember that stuff. What I really remember more though, is I remember, listen, um, when we did not have our papers, there was another family of our ethnic group who also through forces of globalization and choice, you know, it's never just one or the other through sort of huge forces. They landed, there were childhood friends of my dad and they landed in the apartment building next to ours in Flushing Queens. And dad was thrilled, 
thrilled to encounter his countrymen, his neighbors from back home. He, my father was someone who spent his life just longing for home and fated not to have it. That, that was his life. And this countryman is like, Namdev, Namu, I'll take care of you. Everything will be fine. Come under my wings. Da, da, da. Guess what happened? He was the first one to rob us blind. He was the one to threaten to call deportation officers on us. Wow. He was the one who, in my father's absence, attempted to fondle my mother. That's the real world. Oh. So it wasn't until your father got his U.S. citizenship, which he ended up, Eventually, thanks to all that yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then he had the freedom to go to India. Yeah. yeah. And that was when his health started to, to deteriorate. Right. Um, so what was that like for him to go? Had he always wanted to go? No, no, no. It was interesting. So, you know, um, <laughs> the ins and outs of how my father went from criminal alien, which was the official sort of legal moniker to American citizen is, you know, I, I write about, about that sort of interesting chapter in, in my own activism and, and sort of post 9-11 America. And I, I do want to note one thing just about that. Uh, Janet Napolitano, who some of you might know her name, uh, she's at Berkeley. Um, she used to head Homeland Security. And when I was at the beginning of writing my book, I'd reached out to her and she graciously accepted the call. Because I just felt like telling her, hey... My dad was supposed to be deported under your watch, and we basically slipped him through the cracks and got him citizenship. And I just needed her to know that. <laughs> what did she say? Well, and I, I do want to preface it with like, she, um, it's not that I gave her the paperwork and she could read it all for herself, but trusting my summary of the events, which are fully accurate. Um, <laughs> what she said is that the fact that he went from being an aggravated felon, which was his, the specific legal moniker for my father, aggravated felon. It's, it's sort of, it's just like Kafkaesque immigration term that sounds horrible. And it like, it includes misdemeanors. It's like, it's amazing. But imagine like, if you're talking to press as like an ice agent, like, well, we have aggravated felons in here. Oh, okay, good. You know, like it's, it, that's how it works narratively. Um, but anyway, I, I told her about dad's case and she's like, um, that he was charged as an aggravated felon and ultimately naturalized as a U.S. citizen is nothing short of a miracle. And, and here's me editorializing. I don't even think that or know that she meant that like in a good way. It's just kind of like, like ultimately. She was saying I, we made a mistake. Well, I mean, like my father's citizenship could absolutely be seen as like bureaucratic fumbling. Again, the real world you know? Um, and, and that's, you know, I feel like it's important to be honest about that point because I don't want anyone, I don't want anyone to walk away with the misunderstanding that, oh, because the Shahani's managed to solve the case, it must mean justice worked. No, we solved the case because we stepped outside of the justice system and the people running that system happened to make a lot of mistakes themselves. But my father, so it was a combination of sort of luck and determination, which is how a lot of things happen in life. Um, my father, he didn't, after he became a citizen, he no longer had to live in hiding in America. This is like, as soon as people get their green card or their citizenship, what's the first thing an immigrant wants to do? Travel. Like literally, the first thing you want to do is fly out of the country as soon as you can. Um, you know this. You're nodding like. Did you, did you go to Ireland or where did you go? Um, I went to Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's where he's from, by the way. Okay. <laughs> I didn't just pick an awesome no, green didn't. lush country <laughs> that matches us apparently today. Um, so my father did not, he was in no rush to go back to India. And, and like so many things in life, I, you know, it's funny because growing up, mom would try to push dad to do things and he would just shut down on her. Like, don't tell me what to do, woman. And then when it was his daughter pushing, he opened to it. He softened to it. Every daughter must know exactly what I'm talking about. Our fathers are better men to us than they were to their wives. That's just the nature of this stuff. Um, and so dad did not want to go back per se, but I had this sense. This is, you know, it's a, a funny part of the book. 
I wanted him to go back because it just felt like you should go back. You should go touch ground there. You should go see your family there. Go just be there for a bit. And I think that part of it was just like the sense that his health had been fragile. I mean, you know, even before he did his sentence at Rikers Island, um, you know, he, he was having heart conditions and he ended up having multiple heart attacks. He had lost all of the teeth in his mouth. We ultimately had to get his leg amputated. He was, he was just decaying. He was like, literally, it was a very slow decay. Um, I didn't know it at the time. I know it now as an adult. What my father was really grappling with at the core of every one of these issues was just depression. Deportation and America's justice system was not his first rodeo. It was mine, but my father had lived through civil war. He'd seen some pretty horrific things. He was treated as a low wage migrant worker throughout Northern Africa and the Middle East. I mean, he'd already seen his share of pain. And so what happens in America, he, he didn't have the energy to just pick himself back up and deal with it the way that someone who's much younger might, you know, it's interesting. I had a, the, the book starts with a very unlikely reunion, which is the judge in my father's case. Um, I now live a fancy life. That's, that's how I call my, my public radio life, my fancy life. Um, I, happened to have friends in common with the judge who sentenced my father and uncle. Life has evolved such that we have friends in common. LinkedIn has made this clear to me. That's <laughs> <laughs> really this, you know, it's sort of the <laughs> how surveillance helped me be more introspective. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but basically a mutual friend and the mutual friend was the jailer of Rikers Island. Um, the mutual friend. So like, the, yeah, I'm friends with the jailer who ran the jail. And then I get to know the judge who hit the gavel. The jailer asked if I wanted to meet the judge in my dad's case. And he didn't know my background. He didn't know all the stuff. He just knew me as an NPR correspondent. So he didn't actually know the rest of me. So he introduces me to the judge via email and judge like, Oh, I hear you on the radio. Come by sometime. And I didn't actually know why um, I wanted to come by. But, you know, I was curious. So I go during one of my trips to New York. I now I'm based here. I live here. During one of my trips to New York, I take the train out to Queens. It's like, literally, I'm just like kind of like, this is reminding me back when dad was in court. You know, whatever. Get to the courthouse. It's interesting because it all looked much smaller to me. I, I don't actually understand why when you're a kid, everything looks so big. Even though like, I was fully my height by the time I was 11, so I was already my height by the time I was in court, but like, whatever. So I get to the Queen's courthouse. I go to the courtroom. I go and I hand the bailiff my card, like, I'm here to see the judge. And like, the other defendants are like looking at me like, how is she going to see the judge? And like, I had no, like, I felt like such a poser because I was like, my place in this courtroom is right where they are, right where their families are. I will always be that kid, no matter how fancy life gets. That's who I am. And that's who I identify with. Give the card. Bailiff brings me back to the judge's chambers. Judge opens the door. We're shaking hands before I am. I've stepped inside fully. I believe before I am seated. Certainly he says first words out of his mouth, your father and uncle should never have taken that guilty plea. What a mistake. And that hurt. Again, the difference between being a journalist and being a daughter. As a journalist, interesting story. As a daughter, what the hell are you talking about? Mm -hmm. But I couldn't say anything. I just sat there and I literally just felt the spirit leave my body. I felt the spirit leave my body. I needed to sit down. I didn't want to talk to him and I just wanted to get out. Because it was painful. It was painful to hear from the person who was sitting right there it didn't have to go down this way. I heard the evidence and he told me, he told me these details. He's like, why do you think they brought this case out to Queens instead of Manhattan? Here's a little lesson in how the drug wars worked. Most of the investigations were botch investigations. If prosecutors managed to get anything of value, they would have filed it in Manhattan with all of the press. When it was a crap investigation, it comes out to Queens for me. 
my dad and uncle, they just needed something to hang their investigation on, someone to pay something for all the effort they put in to justify their budget lines. That's the justice system. I get it. Mm. I didn't want to hear any of it. I left his courtroom and the tears literally all the way back on that E-train to Manhattan, like just like this, convulsing, just convulsing. I had just been hired by NPR. I was getting my credit score in order. My, my life was finally a life other than immigrant daughter. And I was like, Arthi, what the hell are you doing here? Don't go to these places. Don't, you don't need to hear it. You don't need to know it. And I never told my family about it. They never knew about that meeting until I wrote the book. Really? Yeah. Uh, and you had a, a lot of ambivalence about me, that maybe you were imposing your own will on fighting for your dad, that maybe he just wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. But is there a world where you think you could have not fought from? You mean a world where I asked what he wanted? <laughs> and then did it. I somehow can't imagine that world. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... I needed to write a whole book to be at peace with fighting because I have, I had, I have, I have less so now, but I had deep ambivalence about it. Yeah. Thanks. So we're coming up to the end now and, and it's an inforum tradition to ask all of our speakers. Are you okay with, with this question? Oh, sure. So it's, yeah. it's the question is, um, and everyone else asked this and I know we're, we're, Radically changing <laughs> subject uh -huh. matter here now, but mm. you're also um, Please, it's time. NPR Silicon Valley correspondent, so maybe it's relevant. But the question is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? Oh, it's simple. Shh. <laughs> no, it's relevant to my idea. Each of us has to give ourselves the gift and the discipline of quiet. I fought when I was fighting for my father, I was just like a decade long tornado and it became very hard to see things clearly. And something that I think gave me the courage to see clearly and to make sense of my family's journey was letting myself just hear what was inside. And I think if, if we're less afraid of that, you know, we will each lead with much more clarity instead of. That's why I said, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Great. Yeah. Well, Arthi, thanks so much for joining us tonight at Inform so of the Commonwealth Club. Arthi will be in the lounge uh, to sign books if you want to meet her there afterwards. So thank you very much for and joining. So, some of you may have seen this from Twitter. I have this like totally dorky habit of a selfie with the group from here. So <laughs> yeah, it's like you're not going to get away from it. I know it's dorky. I don't care. Um, do you know how to do selfies? Um, I do, but I have a different phone. Are you sure you do? <laughs> I, do I go this way? Like, just, yeah, just there give we go. Me that. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. You can say uh, hi, everyone. Good. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>